0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and thirty-day free trial at audibletrial.com/slash-picturelock. There's over one hundred and eighty thousand titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And it goes a little something like this. You're listening to WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the world-famous, award-winning Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. The 2018 D.C. Black Film Festival call for entries is now open. Filmmakers can submit through Film Freeway. Visit dcbff.org for more details. Black Web Fest hits New York City this weekend, and I have some of the directors that will be showcasing their work on the program today. From Where Branches Break, director Sev Demi stopped by, creators of the hilarious comedy Frank and Lamar, Anthony Gaskins, and Carl Foreman Jr. talk about writing smart comedy, and writer-director Savannah Trina talks about her film, The Colored Girl's Restroom. And That's all ahead on Picture Lock.
1: Hi, this is Atsushi Ogata, creator of Mona Lisa
0: Cowboy, and you're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and in Where Branches Break, an ex-convict becomes an Uber driver with murderous intentions. I have writer-director Sev Demi on the line with me. Sev, welcome to Picture Lock. Oh,
2: thank you so much for having me, Kevin. I'm excited to uh, be on your program, man. Really excited.
0: Awesome, man. It's my pleasure. First question I always start out with. When did you first fall in love with film?
3: Um, So I don't
2: know the exact date or time, but I can say that uh, when I was younger, like elementary school age, um, my father was like an independent businessman, uh, entrepreneur, kind of driving up and down the state of California, attending to his businesses. And so The way he babysat me was he would just send me to the movie theater with like twelve bucks, and back in that day, you could actually get in the movie theater, right? A couple (laughs) movies with twelve bucks, and and get popcorn and a soda with twelve bucks.
0: Right, exactly. You were um, set.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I was set. So, um, so that was what it was. It was like I was I was one of these kids that showed up at like a ten thirty or eleven a.m. at the movie theater and would stay till like five or six, just jumping screens and falling in love with the magic of cinema.
0: Man, that that is pretty awesome. Um, you know, I I, I want to say that I wish my parents had dropped me off at the theater and given me 12 bucks, but, you know, you wouldn't be who you <laughs> were if, you know, it was a different story, but that's pretty cool. If you could just give the audience a history lesson, um, how'd you get started in the film industry?
2: I was always like a natural creative guy, like whatever it was. I just, you know, I see people doing cool things and I'm like, I want to try it, I want to do it. Um, so... I originally started off so I moved to LA, like with this I'm gonna drive out there and I'm gonna make it. <laughs> and uh <laughs> yeah. And so I, I was coming from Mississippi, I'd finished college and uh, I uh I really actually was gonna get into music and um you know, I'm I'm working odd jobs and bouncing around. I did work in uh, the school system for a little while, but um I end up getting a PA job on a reality TV show. And uh, and I was, I was super skeptical. Like, oh, reality TV, that's not my thing. You know, I don't really watch these shows. And I'm not into this.
0: Right, right. But,
2: um, but but I show up on set, and really it wasn't about the content. It was just more about, like, all this technical knowledge that I was completely agreeing to. And, um, and it just worked where I was like, you know, if I just shut up and pay attention and make friends with people, this could actually be my film school, um, and that's that's kind of how it happened for me. That's the way I was kind of able to penetrate the business. I uh, I worked for like four or five years in reality TV, numerous jobs, kind of moving up the ladder a little bit, and uh, I just learned as much as I can, saved up some money, and uh, just went at it. Started making started making films, so, and I so I'll, I'll say this too: the one thing I really learned from reality TV, which I think. I don't know if it's reality-based, but just my approach—it um, helped me kind of approach it from a professional, organized manner, um, mm. versus just kind of leaning on friends and hey, homie, can you bring a light over here? And, you know, <laughs> I didn't—I didn't approach it—I didn't approach it like that. I felt like okay, now I know—I know who rents stuff. I know how to cast. I know it gave me a lot of technical and professional know-how on just how to actually make a product, and I, th- I think that helped me a lot.
0: Totally makes sense. It's Picture Lock, I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and I'm talking with the guy that understands sometimes you just need to be quiet, play the wallflower, and pay attention. It's the writer-director of Where Branches Break, Sev Demi. Sev, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I really appreciate what you just said in terms of, hey, it's true, if you're on set and if you, you, know, you hustle, you you watch what everybody else is doing, you can learn uh, and get your film school in a box right there. So that makes a lot of sense. If we could, let's go ahead and get into where branches break. Uh, What was the inspiration for this film?
2: Um, Okay, so I'm going to try not to jump around too much, but like my films, I tend to, there are a lot of layers in what I try to present. Um, So I would say that the first, the first inspiration, the way I kind of started the film was um, was it was a quote that I had read in a book um, by Thomas Sowell. Uh, he, he's a, he was a U.S. economist. He wrote a personal memoir book. But in it, um, he he wrote this quote by this guy named Charles Sanders Pierce, and it's, it goes, uh, many a man has cherished for years as his hobby some vague shadow of an idea meaningless to be false. So that's that that, that that quote alone is kind of where branches break coming from. Um, to me, it was about identity and the central character of the story. It, it revolves around two men, Abraham and Isaac. And I just asked myself, like, um, on a little bit of a larger scale, uh, African-Americans, how we struggle with identity, who we are, who we try to be, how people see us, where we fit in, where we don't fit in. Um, and how we kind of occupy space, uh, where we're wanted and not wanted. Um, I think the whole N word thing, like the, whether, I, I won't say it for you guys here today. I'm sure everyone's heard it. Um, just how it, how, how it penetrates our young culture and just kind of identity on, on all these kind of like who I have to be or what, um, kind of mechanisms I have to have about myself in order to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just told myself, I, I really fell in love with the quote because the second part is, what if it's too, if it's, is it too meaningless to be false? So I, I really kind of started from this philosophical place of what if we're living this whole thing and it's not true? Like we're trying to be men, we're trying to be tough, we're trying to get respect in our community. Some of us think we have to be thugs, and we have to be this and all that, and how it can take up a whole lifetime. So um, that's how I started with my first character when I was writing the story of Abraham. I, I was thinking about a man that, uh, that kind of got lost in the soft, trying to be somebody he wasn't. And now he's just alone, like we see many African-American men on the streets all over America. Um, so I hope I didn't jump around too much, but that, that was the genesis. That's kind of what I was thinking. I was like, what is it like to be a lonely, disconnect, disconnected man on the street? And what's your story? like it doesn't just start there it had to start before
0: that yeah so i um, mean if we could let's paint a little bit of a picture for the audience so you know um the film kind of starts out and uh it's two guys are there uh at the police station correct yeah yeah, yeah. and um and That's so the So I kind of went into it blind in terms of I didn't really like read what it was about. But after that, we kind of follow Abraham as he goes on this journey. Now, the interesting thing, the questions that I kind of wanted to ask you uh, in regard to Abraham's character is... You know, from the outstart, for some reason, I guess he, him being quiet and then a man of a certain age. So you know, he has gray gray hair. Uh-huh. You can tell he's still like on the younger side, but like you know, he must be in like maybe his fifties or something like that. And so uh-huh. there's there's a certain amount of trust that we as an audience member give his character, uh, and 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 I think in some ways maybe because of age, um, in another way because of the the two guys that you have uh, in the beginning, Abraham and and this other ex-con that are kind of talking and therefore just in terms of um, one is a little bit more brash and then Abraham is more reserved I think you automatically kind of side with Abraham and you rock with him, right? And then we get into, you know, the Uber and uh, and then things kind of switch on a dime and so I was wondering, like, just in terms of building uh, the character of Abraham and even that juxtaposition of those two ex-cons in the beginning, um, was that also a part of it in terms of how you as writer-director wanted to um, kind of bring the audience into Abraham's world and then kind of flip things on us?
2: Wow, that's deep, and that's, that's a great question.
3: <laughs> uh, I try, man, I try.
4: Yeah,
3: yeah, see, yeah, yeah, yeah that's deep. No, no, that's great, um, okay, so, well, one, I want this to be about Rare
2: Branches Break, which it is, but I, I kind of try to make my films exist in one universe. So the reason that the the film opens up that way is because uh, that character that he's sitting next to, talking to him, is uh, the same character from my first film uh, called Dude's Revenge, where he's kind of like a conman character. And so now he reappears again with this con and he's talking to Abraham and yeah, uh, Abraham's definitely the elder statesman in this, in this situation. Um, but he's just kind of, it's, it's almost supposed to be reflection. His silence is almost like, is he upset? Is he thinking, is he embarrassed? Like all these, all these kind of compromises that, uh, you feel on your integrity as an older person in a really poor situation, like being part of the legal system. And, and then as we transition to him leaving that, and we see him standing on the street, that's when Isaac is introduced, but Isaac's actually preaching. So what I was trying to actually pull off was uh, when you hear the sermon that Isaac is giving, is that his subco- is that Abraham's subconscious talking until you see Isaac's face actually delivering the word? Because um, it starts off with, look at me. You know, some of us think we... We can do better. Some of us maybe are doing worse. Um, But as we see somebody and how do we judge them? So Abraham and Isaac are Abraham and Isaac of the Bible. Abraham uh, is asked to sacrifice his son for God. And uh, as he meets Isaac and this man, is as Abraham is disconnected from his family, he he kind of starts this contemplating, should I sacrifice this person for my God and his God as an ex-convict? is really just survival. It's just money. It's just avoiding prison. Um, it's the cycle. And uh, so yeah, I, I wanted it to be, I, I'm gonna try to actually answer your question directly. One thing that I wanted to, that's important to me is that I think African-American characters need to be given the credit to be complex. And um, I, didn't want, I didn't want Abraham to be a surface character. So if the fact that he was going to commit crimes in the film or anything like that, I wanted you to look at him and still say, this guy has depth and he has a story. And for that alone, I can respect him. Uh, I think sometimes when we look at villains or typically black villains in films, they just seem hungry or satiated by the idea of the crime or the blood or the, you know, getting the cash. I wanted Isaac or, or I'm sorry, Abraham to be a little bit more than that.
0: Wow. It's picture lock. I mean, it's Kevin Sampson. My mind is getting blown right now in terms of the depth of this film where branches break. I'm speaking to the writer-director, Sev Demi. Sev man, you know, like I caught I caught a little bit, but I, I really didn't I didn't catch the Abraham and Isaac portion. And I love the fact that you said, you know, it's about is Abraham gonna sacrifice his son to the God of uh, you know, survival? Um, man, that just lets me know that this thing has a lot more layers than I even uh, you know, saw just watching. I had to watch it again. But, folks, you can <laughs> actually check it out this weekend at uh, Black Web Fest in New York. Uh, so if you go to blackwebfest.com, you'll be able to find out more information about getting tickets there. Um, but, yeah, Sev, if you could... Um, Man, I, I wanna I wanna spend some more time on this. Jeez, because you just opened up my mind to a, <laughs> to a whole lot more. But uh, I, I'll ask one more question, and then I want I want to make sure people can follow you on social media. Um, the sure. this this question was: There's a moment where, which I which I really thought was really dope in terms of, uh, as you said, Abraham is trying to reconnect uh, and connect the dots between um, him and Isaac, right? And then, Mm -hmm. you know, he has another rider that gets in the car, and it's almost like it seems to start over again. So that was one thing Mm -hmm. I was wondering. I was like, is he just saying that to every uh, black dude that gets in the car, or was it, like, real?
2: Yeah, Yeah. okay. No, it is a a metaphor for all of us, for the vulnerability of black people and how disconnected we are. The fact that if you're Kevin and you live in D.C., you could go to Chicago this weekend and possibly meet a relative you've never met before or heard of, but they could connect you due to the great migration that African Americans have gone through over you know the last 50 years, 60 years, um, really longer than that. So uh, Abraham is continuing this cycle. Isaac is not actually his son, but what he's doing is he's, he's, he knows that if I talk to any any African-American that gets in my car and I know their locale, they will gain, I will have their trust. Um, and so, and so that's kind of what he does to Isaac, and that's what he does to his second writer. Um, and so many of these locales, whether you're from Harlem or Memphis or Chicago or D.C. or L.A., a lot of this is known by tragedy. You know, a lot of this is known by, um, by people that move places for opportunity and only learn their work there was no opportunity so then they had to keep moving so um that's that's why i used memphis specifically because uh a lot of memphis's population is comes from arkansas slave camp and uh and people that crossed the river and were able to build up uh orange mound which was a community in memphis which was really the largest independently built community uh of african-americans at one point in the nation and uh and then the second writer is from Detroit because uh, as the migration continued and people went north for work, Detroit obviously became a hub of African-American laborers, and uh, there was riots that kind of caused uh, people to, to keep on moving or to refigure, reconfigure or for families to separate. Um, so that's kind of how I found my path to those, uh, those characters.
0: Yeah, you know, um, man, dude, this thing is really deep, and, I, and I, I'm i loving this. Uh, you said Orange Mound, and now, for some reason, this is random, but uh, that took me back to 3-6 Mafia when they would be like, Westwood, Orange Mound. So, okay, Memphis yeah. connected. Now, um, you talk mm-hmm. about Arkansas, and even in my family, um, you know, a, a large chunk of my mom's family landed in Arkansas, and then they went up to um, – Detroit and Flint, Michigan, actually, and and worked in the GM plant and stuff like that. So you're absolutely correct. Uh, I definitely think, folks, that this is a film that you got to check out. um, And you just heard it. I mean, obviously, there's so many layers. Uh, Sev, if you could let the audience know how they could follow you, find out more about the film, social media, etc.
2: Yeah. um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on what else am I on? I'm on Instagram. Um, all of it's pretty easy. You can always find me at Seb Demi S E V D E M Y. I try to keep it pretty uniform across the internet. Um, but yeah, Google me, find me. I'm, uh, I'm Seb Demi on uh, on pretty much everything. And uh, where branches break has a Facebook page. Please jump on there and like it. Um, yeah, and then you'll, you you might also see some information from my first film, Duda's Revenge, and this is my second work, uh, Where Branches Break. And uh, the biggest part of this film, the reason I would love to hear people's comments or anything they have to say, is I really actually try to not make a linear story and see what people's reactions and what they felt. And so I love hearing people's interpretations. I love hearing how much you got into it, Kevin, and how it affects you. So this is a film I made. To almost here, I really want to hear how people react to the product. You know,
0: got it, man. And I think you're gonna get um, a lot of people talking about it, especially once again, folks. If you're in the New York area, um, you'll be able to see it at Black Web Fest this weekend uh writer director of where branches break sev demi man i appreciate you coming on i'm gonna have to talk to you about let let me see Dudu's revenge now so i can go back see the archives because yeah you you definitely i'll send you a link kevin i appreciate it man you are definitely on your way uh once again writer director of where branches break sev demi thanks for coming on picture lock
2: thank you so much kevin thank you
0: for your time Let's take a quick break for promos, stay tuned. What's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening to and supporting Picture Lock. I absolutely love film, as you know, and have given my life to studying the medium. As a filmmaker, I understand what it takes to make a film from its inception to the big screen. As a critic, I've been able to see the business of film from the marketing side of things, and as a film festival director, I've been able to see the distribution side, but more importantly, the enormous amount of talented filmmakers out there creating and crafting stories from their heart. And that's why I've started PictureLock PR. If you're a filmmaker or producer looking to engage audiences and create relevance around your latest or upcoming project, head over to PictureLockPR.com. We can help you with your film's publicity from pre to post-production. Get more information and see the clients we've helped in the past at PictureLockPR.com. PictureLock PR. Finally, a partner as passionate as you. hey everybody i appreciate everyone that listens to the picture lock podcast and for you audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service if you're like me then it's been a while since you've sat down and read a book but it hasn't been long since you listened to a podcast in fact you're listening to one right now why because you're able to be entertained informed or educated on the go that's kind of how I like my books as well. With Audible.com, I can listen to Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces or Robert McKee's story when I'm in the mood for learning about the craft or Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point when I'm trying to learn how to be a better influencer. The point is, a wealth of knowledge is at your fingertips. All you have to do is go to audibletrial.com picturelock for a free 30-day trial. It's that easy. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash lock for a free 30-day trial to Audible.
4: And I want to show you how you all look like beautiful stars.
0: listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and Frank and Lamar follows two best friends who live together and work together as middle school teachers in New York City. When workplace drama, romance, and personal growth turn their world upside down, their friendship is put to the test. I have the co-creators of the web series, Anthony Gaskins and Carl Foreman Jr. on the line with me. Guys, welcome to Picture Lock.
3: Hello. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us,
0: Kevin. Definitely my pleasure. Uh, I can't wait to crack into Frank and Lamar. First question I always start out with, guys, when did you first fall in love with film? Anthony, how about you start out, just so the audience will know whose voice is whose.
3: Yeah, okay, great. I mean, you know, my intro to film was a little different. I, I, I'll do the abridged version just for the sake of time. But uh, I knew when I first got on the stage, it was like, you know, I, I went to a pretty tough uh, school in Las Vegas, Nevada, and my theater teacher, who I, I was just taking the class as an elective, she asked me to be in the play Stand and Deliver, and I had like a small part. I don't know if you remember that movie Stand and Deliver, yeah, but Edward uh, James almost, yeah, yeah. And I actually played the, the lawyer, hit the black lawyer, and um, so I did. I did the play version, and when soon as I stepped on the stage, I was like, I was immediately just like in love with the, just I just felt at home. So I went and watched the movie, and I was like, yo, I can do this. I think this is what I want to do. And then, of course, after that, I just started looking at film much differently. I started looking at the whole creative arts as, like, a possibility for a career path. And then that's how I kind of got my way into it, was Ms. Bernstein, God rest her soul, was my theater teacher who really just kind of opened my eyes to this whole world.
0: Man, I love that story. Carl, how about you, man? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, you know, I was was also in high school. I was going to a far less tough high school. (laughs) Um in uh Baltimore, Maryland. Um, shout out to Mount Saint Joe. And um <laughs> I uh I o I I don't know, I had like a I had like a for a couple of years probably I'd been like, hmm, I wonder if acting would be fun. like I think that's something I might be good at. Because I used to like uh entertain myself by saying ridiculous lies to my friends and just with a straight face and wait until they figured it out. Um <laughs> Like, I would never I would never let it go, like, you know, like, let them leave my presence and think it was still the truth, you know, but I was just, you know, like, oh, wow, they bought that, cool. So I auditioned <laughs> for the, the, the play, uh, I auditioned for the Philadelphia story, and I was cast in that in 10th grade, um, not Philadelphia, I didn't play Denzel or Tom Hanks, but I was like, <laughs> it's the, like the 1940 Aubrey Hepburn movie, and uh, it, it's like... I played the dad in it. And um, I just remember, you know, um, I guess this isn't really film, it's more of just acting. uh, But I remember, like, I left, you know, after the first performance, I felt such a high. And, like, I I had nobody to really talk to about it because no one who I was close with could relate. So I, like, journaled it. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I wrote it down in, in cursive. You know, because I was nice. still doing that. Yeah, came. Was on point. <laughs> right <laughs> now, now, my now my penmanship sucks to this day. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I kept, I kept that little letter, like, and you know, I just, I still have every once in a while so look at it. But since then, that's when I first was like, you know, I think I like this stuff.
3: Nice,
0: man. That's what's up, man. I appreciate uh, both of you guys' story, uh, and and then let's just kind of jump into a history lesson of like how you guys went from you know, being on the stage to to now with Frank and Lamar. Um, I know for a fact, you know, as I was doing my research uh, for the interview, I, I went back to the old college humor video and I was like, whoa, this is, life always does that full circle thing uh, with Carl, where you yeah. were like the, the um, panhandler on the New York subway. That was one <laughs> hilarious video. So if you could just let the audience know kind of, you know kind of quick short version but in terms of like right now with Frank and Lamar you guys co-created it so as you said you know you wrote it um produced it all that good stuff um so if you could just talk about like what you did in the past that really kind of set you up for for this in terms of really taking it to a professional level
1: Yes, sure. So uh, I guess the short version is we met in grad school at uh, we met in our graduate acting program at the at uh, the American Repertory Theater slash uh, Moscow Art Theater program, which is at Harvard. Uh, shout out to ART.
3: Shout um, out to ART.
1: We're actually going to a life after showcase panel this evening where we will be panelists uh, to say. <laughs> Don't be too hype after to Showcase. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we, um, so I, I graduated a year ahead of Anthony. Uh, we both moved to New York City upon graduation. I had actually been here um, for a couple of years in my, my pre-grad school life. Um, but uh, we happened to be some out-of-work actors as young actors tend to be uh, without agents or real footage. And we said, hey, man, uh, let's fix that. Um, so let's figure out how we can get ourselves on camera and maybe get some reps and maybe, you know, and, and, and maybe do a project. Uh, well, all right, cool. I know. What do you know that I know that we can speak to honestly? Well, Anthony was saying he was a kindergarten teacher at the time. I was a college advisor at the time at a teen center. So, okay, education. So that's how I was, I was like the, the, the kernel of Frank and Lamar. How it came to be. Um and, and
3: I would I was throw in there too, like, you know, Carl and I both, um, you know, when we first got to New York we were both hitting the pavement very hard, you know, back backstage, uh, I was using that constantly. I was doing, you know, off 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 times like three, you know, Broadway uh shows. Um, you know, trying to just, like, you know, get myself in the game, and I, and I, was, I was really sure that the ticket was going to be theater, Man, you know, we went to school at this really prestigious university, and we put in our time, we learned all the damn techniques, we studied in Moscow for crying out loud, I was 100% <laughs> certain that, you know, <laughs> 100% certain that I was going to be able to make it as a theater actor, um, and I think I had a pretty successful run at it, you know, did some really good shows, worked at some pretty prominent off-Broadway theaters, but... I was realizing that it still wasn't getting us any sort of notoriety. Uh, me particularly wasn't getting me the proper notoriety. And then I started moving into the idea of like, you know what, let's start creating work. And I remember Carl and I had a podcast at one point that we were trying to generate some buzz around. That kind of tapered off. We even shot a short film together um, a few years before we even started the whole Frank Lamar process that uh, you know didn't really get any recognition as well as we thought it would have. And, um, you know, Carl at the time was doing a lot. And he started doing a lot. Of, he got into the comedy realm. You know, I think uh, he, he moved into that realm um, as he saw that as another platform for him to get his voice out there and try to gain some notoriety. And then we just ended up kind of just, you know, the universe aligned properly. And we just were like, you know what, as Carl said, let's just write something that we both know that, we, as you know, is going to be interesting to us. And, and we just ended up getting Frank Lamar off the ground. But it, it took us a while, though. I think it was a, a total of about five years. Uh, going mm-hmm. it, like as of right now, it's about five years total we've been working to try to get this just to the place that it is right now.
1: Yeah, we um yeah, Anthony had stuck with theater a lot, like straight theater a lot longer than I did. I had uh, given up is the word um, <laughs> on that, and like I had just you know yeah I moved into I realized that like I was a lot more marketable uh, doing sketch comedy, and uh, that kind of took me towards studying at the Upright Citizens Brigade. Theater, uh, where I ended up being on uh, some house sketch team, and uh, that's how I was able to be introduced to the world of internet comedy, which is to reference that that college humor video, the subway fan handler, uh, that I did uh, about almost five years ago now. Yeah, five years ago is when it came out. Yeah, wow.
0: yeah,
1: wow. um, time flies when you're having fun, baby. <laughs> I guess or, so, or, or not, <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't know if it's live. And
0: I thought I was about to be on after that joint, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. It's picture lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and I'm talking with the co-creators of Frank and Lamar, Anthony Gaskins and Carl Foreman Jr. Um, man, guys, I really love uh, this conversation mainly because um, I I think that especially for those of us of a certain age, I, I think we're probably in the same um, age bracket, but. Like, right now, everything is going from, you know, what you've been hustling, doing, um, and you'd probably do it for free, and then it's, like, actually turning into, um, you know, something with a, with a little bit more bite, a little bit more of legs. And so just going into Frank and Lamar, if you could, for the audience, kind of give a summary about what the web series is all about. I love the fact that, you know, you guys are writing from what you know and what you've experienced, um, but on top of that, like, I just found myself – cracking up like <laughs> watching it. It's it's really uh, funny, um, but it gives you like, you know, just enough six to seven minutes uh, where it's like, all right, let me check the next one. Let me check the next one. So uh, if you could let the audience know just uh, what Frank and Lamar is all about.
3: Yeah, well, first of all, I really appreciate you, you know, enjoying it. And I'm glad you laughed because we, you know, we really wanted to make it something that was fun and interesting and, and kept it kept the pace going so you would want to watch the next episode. Um, and I think, you know, uh, Frank Lamar, to me, was always about, you know, you know, a lot of it. Carl and I would talk about very similar stories being young men of color in predominantly white institutions, um, particularly with me and Carl. who's been done a lot of work on. You know, but uh, i I worked at a prestigious uh, you know pr- private school in west West and uh, you know it's, uh, it's very different being a person of color in these types of spaces because you have to move differently you gotta act differently you gotta you know what I'm saying, you gotta code switch when you don't when you don't necessarily want to and it, and it was so nice to be able to show that side while also keeping it real and being able to show these two guys were just really good friends uh, just being you know boys trying to trying to figure their lives out in New York which I think you know, we can all relate to as well.
0: Yeah, most definitely.
1: <clears throat> so, you know. yeah. Yeah, and, and to piggyback off that, like, um, yeah, is one of the things that was always interesting. Cause, like, I probably had been educated in an environment closer to that environment, uh, whereas Anthony had not, and then now I'm working with, um, I mean, no school I went to was, like, as kind of exclusive as, as the one we, we portray. Um but I you know I went but uh you know I went to like private school, Catholic school, um and uh and you know, but now I work with public school kids and he came with the opposite kind of way. So he went to public school all his life and then and now he's working with, with like rich private school kids and, and you know so we would always you know we would talk about that. And then at the same time we were also like having these kind of like uh, life crises milestone moments in our in our in our adult development. So we tried to wrap all that up into this into who these characters were. Um in, in terms of like basically loosely, loosely very, very loosely basing them off ourselves.
3: Mm-hmm. Um
1: and then and then we also wanted to with the dialogue make it sound as naturally as possible. So when, in our writing, uh, you know, Anthony and I spent a lot of time on uh on on facetime audio and on (laughs) skype and things like that reading the script to each other and being like hey uh you know what you wrote that line for me i think i would say it this way and vice versa and like and then until until it's and then just massaging it, massaging it until it sounded as natural as possible within the framework of a story that we tried to get you know arc wise as solid as possible as well and i would just like
3: to throw in lastly too it's like we really have a diverse group of friends. And uh, that the show, we like I said, we, we, we basically cast ourselves with our – that was like our network of friends that we know. And uh, so we wanted to bring that world into it as well. We have the diversity that everyone's talking so much about. Like, we live it. It's not nothing that we have to contrive. And also the women characters in the show uh, played by Tessa and Iman, uh, they – Iman Richardson and – Killing and, it. And, 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 oh, was it? Oh, snap, They're Killing yeah. it. Yeah, killing it. And then also, you know, you got Tessa in there uh, and, they, and we really wanted to write the women because like both of our lives, we both got married, uh, you know, within the last few years and uh, me more recently than Carl. But but the women actually in our personal lives have helped shape us as, a, you know, in our careers and also continue to push us and make us grow up even when we don't want to and we just want to kick it you know what I'm saying, and play, and watch basketball all day, but, you know what I'm saying, you gotta, you get that kick in the butt to be able to say, yo, let's get yourself together, do something for yourself, that way we can have a life together, and be, you know, be content, you know what I'm saying?
1: Man, come, yeah, we really
3: wanted to make sure, like, get, like, the, the cast to be, you know,
1: and the same way it was a vehicle for us to try to, like, get some type of, you know, uh, exposure, we wanted to do the same for whoever we, like, cast, right, so, like, pretty much the whole cast is people either we know from school, from, from, uh, from ART, or from that I knew from UCB, you know. Um, and that also helped make some of the, like, on-screen chemistry work well in that, like, we all knew each other, so we all could just, you know, have that familiarity to begin with.
0: Yeah, no, I love it. And, you know, let me jump in real quick because I was going to say, I think that that's one of the things in the writing. And um, uh, I wanted to ask you one question about that. But in the writing and then, you know, on screen, you can tell that there is a certain amount of chemistry, whether it's between you guys or you and, uh, you know, your girlfriends in in the series um, that I really enjoy that, that just felt really authentic. I think like there's moments like, uh, you know, when you think about this is us, you guys, you guys watch that, I'm sure. Um, uh, the, I've the, seen it, yep, yeah, yeah. And and the the character, the um, the black couple, I, I just love those moments when they have, like, you know, all right, you, you get to say, you know, whatever negative thought you're thinking, ready, go. And they like it's these little <laughs> small moments, and you guys have that, like, in the um, culinary art one where um, you're like, blah, blah, you know, and, and you can tell. Okay, these guys have been living and doing life together, and that really translates well. Um, and so last question before we kind of wrap things out, I wanted to ask, um, just in terms of writing smart comedy. So uh, for instance, there's this one, the affinity grouping uh, where you know the, the guys are uh, sitting in the circle and you know the, the lead teacher or whatever is like, hey, we're gonna you know, separate the kids by race and talk about race. Um, And the way that, you know, you guys are basically making social commentary, um, but at the same time, you know, we're getting a laugh because I was definitely laughing uh, on the, you know, dude said the (laughs) N-word, we're going to have to whoop you. So so if, if you could just talk about, like, what goes into the process, I think, of writing smart comedy where... You're 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 not just being bitter, you're not just like, oh, this is life and life sucks, but like you're actually making a a, a good comment on the way the world is while at the same time we're we're getting a, a laugh out of it.
3: Wow.
1: I mean, you know, I think I think I think the um the philosophy we try to have is that whole kind of like mirror up to nature way of things where you just you know, you don't necessarily, I, I, I'm not a big fan of, of like, heavy, heavy-handed commentary in, in art, like, in you know, like, this is the part where the message is, you know what I mean? Like, I don't really
0: right vibe message. with that so much,
1: <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I'd rather, I would rather see it, you know, I'd rather let the audience just see it as it is presented, which is kind of the way closer to what you would experience, you know? Um in that sense, and and, and I don't know, we, we try to have, like, being a writing duo, I would say quality control is something that we, we are very uh, much about in terms of, you know, us being really good friends and, and always trying to keep it real with each other, be like, this, this doesn't work, or this, or, you know, like, we have plenty of conversations where, like, I wrote something, and then Anthony just be like, you know, I just don't feel like anybody would say that, you know, like, and then so... <laughs>
3: Yo, why and you talk talk like that? Why you why you know, are like you trying to
1: sound super west Because like you kind of have like a West Coast twang to that. Well, that's 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 you. That's my nah, present. All right. I'll I'll let it hey, go can, can I, I mean can I finish though? <laughs> All right, go like, ahead. can I finish? I'm just saying, like, you know, like I'm trying to be poignant right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> 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 no, no, for real. <laughs> <so, laughs> <laughs> like like we'll we'll that'll be a sticking point where it's like, all right, until it feels honest, until it feels right, then we can't, like, we don't want to play ourselves at the end of the right. day. You know, um, and, and so I think honesty um, and, and integrity in the art, you know, one thing that I would say going to, the, to the, the MFA program did do is instill a certain level of art snobbery that I think actually serves us to not um, accept uh, just going for the least common denominator, whether or not we, you know, fulfill that or is, is another question. But it, it does make us so say, all right, we should have a certain standard uh, for what we're trying to do. Yeah, and and also, oh, yeah, ahead.
3: Ahead.
1: I was also there. I was just gonna say.
3: I, I was just gonna say. I would also throw in there that Carl and I really I, are about writing the situation. You know, I love to put these characters in these situations, and then like, all like, right, so we have this kind of a character and this kind of a character in a situation. What might the possible outcomes be of this situation? And it leads us a lot of times. We kind of use that to be the guiding, the guiding kind of like uh, sticking point because if you think about it, you know, this is that's what that's what we do in real life. Like we are always in situations, and I guarantee you, you reflect back on those situations. You like, Yo, if somebody was doing that. That should be super funny. <laughs> so, like, you know, these situations have actually happened, you know, are we've tried to try to write situations that we actually really need. and then give everybody, every character, like, a truthful response to the situation, not just, like, oh, to anybody the demon in scenes, but we definitely want to make sure that everyone has, like, a perspective that is valid and also is uh, something that is coming from a truthful place.
0: Got it. Man, guys, I, I, I hate to bring this thing to a close because we could, we could geek out a little bit more. Maybe I can uh, have you guys come back on for a, a more extended interview. Um, but if you okay. could, let folks know where they can uh, find Frank and Lamar and how they can follow you guys on social media.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Frank and Lamar is available on uh, if you go to isc.com uh, slash comedy Trip, and, and then uh, follow the, the links to our show there or you can find us directly on Facebook just type in Frank and Lamar and uh, we our show should show up
3: there um,
1: and, or if uh, you're one of those
3: folks who don't know. like Facebook and you're done with social media you can go to YouTube and just movie. Google search Frank and Lamar, and you'll get the whole playlist right there. Because you know, I know a lot of my a lot of my friends out there are starting to get a little nervous with this whole you know Facebook situation. But we—that's a whole another conversation. You
1: know what I mean?
0: <laughs> right. Indeed, indeed.
1: Um, you may follow me on um, Instagram at Carl
3: Foreman Jr. or on Twitter at C Four to Door. <laughs> yeah, and I'm Anthony. I'm. Uh, you can find me Caskins World on both Twitter and
0: and Instagram, Gaskins World. <laughs> oh, man. C4 to your door. That's for real. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'll, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Number four, number two, by a door. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I've been talking with the co-creators of Frank and Lamar, Anthony Gaskins, and Carl Foreman Jr. Guys, thanks so much for coming on Picture Live. Thank you so yeah, much
3: for having you. us. And uh, we look forward to coming back again.
2: Hi, this is Mike Parsons with DCFilmDom.com and you are listening to Picture Lock.
0: You're listening to Picture Lock, I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and The Colored Girls' Restroom is part one in a series of historical fiction short films that take place from 1960 to 1965. It has a comedic yet emotional tone. In it, a racist boutique owner is moved by the creativity and giving nature of her upper middle-class African-American customers who decorate her colored-only restroom with their own belongings. The film explores emotion, fashion, sophistication, and laughs during a dark time in American history. I have writer-director Savannah Trina on the line with me. Savannah, welcome to Picture Lock.
4: Thank you, Kevin. I'm glad to be here.
0: I'm glad to have you. Savannah, the first question that I always start out with is, when did you first fall in love with film?
4: I've been in love with film forever, all of my life. I've always adored movies, uh, both both old and new. Um, I love the imagination and creativity that, uh, that I can bring to a story. And uh, to be able to recreate stories has always been been something that I've loved to do.
0: Awesome. So, did you have like a certain movie that just kicked it off for you, or um, you know, it's just always been around?
4: Oh, it's interesting enough. The movie that kicked it off for me was this is Kevin is crazy that you would ask me that question. Is You <laughs> <laughs> Then everyone says, "Okay, how random?" No, I I was in love with that movie. I've probably watched it a hundred times. And Crooklyn it was the movie that kicked it off for me. Of course. Of course i love the color purple and movies of that nature but i think Crook- crooklyn was when i knew that you know film was gonna be my thing
0: <laughs> nice yeah i have not gotten crooklyn yet but that that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> all right so if you could give the audience a little history lesson how did you get started in the film industry
4: well i initially started in set decorating i was a set decorator um I own three furniture stores, a little furniture franchise. And then when film started getting, um, being the craze in Atlanta, I began to do a lot of set decorating. And and that's how I got into film. And I'm like, hey, maybe I can do more. Um, I started ghostwriting a couple of things and then um, just decided, well, I think I'm ready to kind of try it on my own.
0: Wow. Oh, man. This is this is a really interesting story, Sarah. It's not necessarily any formal uh, education, going to film school and things like that. You just kind of um, branched out. It was like a hobby. And then you just made it into a, an actual uh, passion and career.
4: Absolutely, Kevin. Yeah, no film school whatsoever.
0: It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the writer-director of The Colored Girls Restroom, Savannah Trina. Savannah if you could, let's go ahead and get into the colored girls restroom. Um, What was the inspiration uh, behind this film?
4: My grandmother and my mother. um, During the time before the Civil Rights Act was enforced in the South, uh, for my grandmother, it was just a way of life. And she had so many stories um, about the restrooms. A lot of people didn't know. Toilet paper wasn't provided. They never cleaned them up. It was often just They were on the outside for the most part, but if you found one on the inside, they'd acted as as if you were um, doing them a favor. (laughs) They were doing you a favor, excuse me, by having it on the inside. Um, They often had to fix them up. They definitely had to keep them clean or else they would just shut them down. Um, So my grandmother would tell me like all the stories about, you know, how they just have um, they go in there, they clean them up. They would inspire each other. Um, leave fancy soaps in there for each other, or soap dishes and, and little things for each other. So, um, with my grandmother's many stories, my mother more so. Um, she was, she, you know, she her her grown up time in the civil rights act time was in the '60s, so it was like a whole fight against it. Um, they more so wouldn't patronize the stores if they if they didn't have a decent bathroom in there. But my grandmother, um, they had more of a camaraderie among African American women as far as the restrooms were
0: concerned. And that's what inspired my story. That's really interesting uh, because, you know, growing up, we always hear different stories from um, our parents and from our grandparents. So it's really cool that you're able to kind of take that story and uh, put it on the big screen. Um, I should say that uh, this will be playing at Black Web Fest in New York uh april 13th through 14th you guys can check it out uh savannah if you could uh, talk a little bit about uh your choice of uh using black and white uh, photography obviously this is a film but uh, i i think that i have my own reasons for why you probably shot it in black and white but i'd like to hear what yours are first
4: kevin that is you know we've been at at several film festivals and that is usually the first question um initially i had no plans to have it in black and white we even colored the film did everything and at the very end i felt like the mood just still was not there like i still didn't feel like i was in the 60s so of course after arguing back and forth with my my cinematographer (laughs) i just said forget it we're doing it in black and white at the very end of the film and, and and that was why I did it, just um, to to uh, give the feel of the '60s a little more.
0: Yeah, and I would definitely agree. I, you know, that's kind of what I was thinking as well. I think uh, also because you know when you go when you take color out of uh, film, generally your focus is a lot sharper. And you know, metaphorically, but then also you know just even with in terms of the science of filmmaking. Uh, But I feel like it's used well here because it really helps you to focus in on uh, the story of these women um, on both sides. You know, the colored women that go into the restroom as well as the white women that um, are out in the front. Uh, If you could just talk a little bit about developing uh, these different characters, the different women that go into the restroom versus uh, the woman that owns
4: the store. Okay, the women who, go, because her clientele is upper uh, middle-class African-American to wealthy uh, African-American women, um, kind of tackling a couple of things here, uh, before the Civil Rights Act was enforced, um, there were, uh, you, uh, well, actually just, just period, like um, a group of women who actually did, or men, just consumers, period, did uh, patronize mostly the African-American stores. But um, my grandmother and my aunts would say like certain minks and certain things you had to actually go to them for that you couldn't get through their own businesses. And um, this is actually part one to uh, a series that I have called Debutales. And they're, they're supposed to be like debutantes, high-end clientele. And um, basically, they're going there for the things that they can't get through their own community stores, and that's kind of like more background of the women. Um, they're bis- wives of business owners. They're uh, self-made women. There uh, some of them are self-made women. Um, one mentions uh, Mrs. Nelson that she's the wife of the top colored doctor. Um, the clientele that basically um, kind of they don't have to, they don't have to shop there, but to get what they want to get, they do. And they're kind of um, kind of getting her, they're there to get her to do what they want her to do in a quiet um, way using camaraderie and their class and sophistication. Um, the over, the, the tone of the film is, there, I don't want to give away a spoiler, so I'm trying to kind of get around it. Right. But they're here for a purpose to try to get her to do a certain thing. And that that
0: gets done. It's Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I'm talking with the writer-director of The Colored Girls Restroom, Savannah Trina. Savannah, one of the things that um, I think uh, as as I watched the film, uh, just leaving away with is, wow, you know, (laughs) what a dark time in our history. And I think that that's one of the things that you're really kind of highlighting. And I think that telling stories like this is important, not just to, you know, put it up on the big screen, but so that we know like where we came from and, and how America has functioned at one point in time. Can you just talk a little bit about um, what you actually want the audience to take away after seeing this film?
4: Well well here's the here's the thing, Kevin. We live in a world where our joy is just so fragile. Yet these stories need to be told. So, um, you know, I really enjoy being able to show African-American women in a sophisticated way and showing camaraderie to accomplish a a common goal. And that's what I kind of want everyone to kind of get from it. You know, they didn't go and tear a store up or, you know, say, okay, you know, fight with with, well there's a little fight that I you know did show a little you know some words but they were actually working together and um like I said these stories have to be told and sometimes you can come away just feeling a certain way and I don't want to like I said our 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 joy is so fragile so I'm just trying to kind of tell the story uh with not such a um such a humdrum, upset, angry feeling afterwards about the camaraderie of African-American women.
0: Last question before we kind of wrap out here. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I do appreciate in, in terms of uh, the set design of uh, your film, you know, it's it seems like it's kind of like a one-location shoot. Um, it's not that big of a room, but at the same time, I feel like you know, um, there's plenty to look at uh, on, on, in terms of the set, the costumes, et cetera. Could you talk a little bit about what, into, what went into your set design and wardrobe?
4: Okay. Um, for wardrobe, uh, we had to, of course, try to find authentic wardrobe. We had a lot of women who believed in the film, who lived through those times, who donated lots of clothing. Um, hats, everything to actually decorate the store. The actual set where it was, the uh, if you if you look at the film, we were shooting from the front. That is an addition where the store was. The restroom that they were going into, that was the outside of an old colored only restroom. It was on the outside. So the store, uh, the new store in the 80s, was built around as an addition. But that's an actual colored only restroom. That was on the outside of the building. That's on the behind it.
1: Really? Yes.
4: Yes. Yeah. So that's why it just had to be that location, and that helped to inspire the story as well. But yeah, that is actually the bathroom that was on on the outside of the building in Stone Mountain, Georgia. So, um, the locals were very excited about it being filmed that way. And in the back now, not uh, the cameraman cinematography, it was a lot of squeezing in that little. <laughs>
0: <room>. <laughs> right. right. But, um,
4: yeah, it was just a matter of just the community kind of coming together to help us do the film and um, a lot of uh, thrifty shopping, <laughs> <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of borrowed clothing to make it authentic um, because that was important to actually set it in that way. So,
0: yeah. And thank you for, for commenting on that. Yeah, no doubt. I I definitely think that it's one of the things that stands out. Um, Savannah, if you could, uh, let audiences know, how can they follow you follow the film on
4: social media? Okay. Well, um, we do right now, we're working on a total web, with all of our the whole w, w tales, which is the story of the debutantes in the 60s. Um, uh, right now, you can follow us on IMDB. And um, for right now, that, that that's what we're doing because we're working. We're just wrapping a couple of projects. Um, number two, Rotten Rabbits, which is kind of about the daughters of these women in the colored only restrooms. It is in color. It was shot in 4K. <laughs> um, so so right now, um, you can follow us on that. We also will have, uh, as of Sunday, we're kicking off our Savannah Trina. TV, which will have all of the films and also a couple of other series on it. So we're excited about that on Sunday.
0: Man, that is something to be extremely <laughs> excited about again writer director of the colored girls restroom savannah trina thanks so much for coming on picture lot
4: okay alrighty. thank you so much kevin for having me
0: that's all for this episode i'd like to thank my guests sev demi anthony gaskins carl Foreman jr and savannah trina for coming on the show be sure to catch up on back episodes and subscribe in itunes tune in stitcher blueberry wherever you catch your podcast If you're a fan of Alexa's skills, just say Alexa, play Picture Lock on TuneIn and i come right up. (laughs) I'm definitely okay with you leaving a five-star review. And in fact, I must say thank you for doing that. You can find Picture Lock on most social media. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. Watch back episodes of the TV show at YouTube.com slash Picture Lock Show and subscribe because I'm about to start unleashing a lot of new videos. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out the form on the website. Did this episode resonate with you? What's your favorite Picture Lock episode so far this year? Have you seen Carl as the panhandler on College Humor? By the way, if you haven't, you definitely should check out that video. It's hilarious. I'll probably put it in the show notes. These are the questions I need answers to. So send me an email and let me know. Let's talk. PictureLockShow at gmail.com. All music is done by Mike S. The Prophet 13 Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson, and until next time, I hope you stay locked on film.